This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, everybody's one. Now, this is the last talk today, right? And then there's one more tomorrow? Yeah, okay. Oh, okay, how you doing? I warn you, I spit when I talk, so you've been warned. You're in the splash zone. You're, you're in the splash zone. Yeah. I usually get done, my iPad is so... I usually preach out of my iPad. When I get done, it is so disgusting. It's, anyway, anyway. Right, let's just pray again and we could get started. Father, again, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things. And I just pray that we'll come away strengthened in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I got sidetracked a little earlier for a change. Because there's so much I want to cover. But we talked about epistemology. How do we know that when we say we know something, and I know my back aches the same way I, I, I know my back aches and I know two plus two equals five, and I know that I was born in Albany, New York, but I know these things differently. And epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. When we say we know something, What do we mean by that? And to me, it's my favorite branch of philosophy because it gets down to everything. I mean, if you, how can you know anything, you know, without, you know, at least understanding why you know it? Now, how does this work? There's different forms of epistemology. And one branch of epistemology is called empiricism. And let me give you an example of how this works. If I said to you, in the room next door, there are 50 people in the room next door, you could go over to the room and you could look through and you could count up the number of people in the room. And then you could say, yeah, I know there are 50 people in the room. You would be doing what you call empiricism. You would be using your senses to come to knowledge about something. Now, I'll contrast with that with another form of knowledge. If I said to you, if there are 20 people in the room, there are more people in the room than if there were just 15 people. And if I said that to you and you said, okay, I'm going to go in the room and look and check. That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? If I say to you, there's, if there are 20 people in the room, there are more people than there are if there are 15 people. You wouldn't have to go in the room to check. You you know, you don't need to see anything. Logic and reason, rationalism. 
You, would, you know the answer to that without needing to go look and see. Logic and reason alone explains that to you. Whereas empiricism, you've got to go in and look. And in many ways, science is a form of empiricist epistemology. It's using our senses to try to understand truths about the real world. But, you know, there's a problem with that. How many times have we, if you, do we realize how deceptive our senses could be? Who here has never been deceived by their senses? In, in philosophy, some people believe that empiricism is absolutely the most unreliable way of ever knowing anything. Because how can you think of all the things that, that deceive us, the way they look, the way they appear, optical illusions, you know, and so forth. And as I said, I used to think too, all the radio waves that are in the room right now, we can't, we can't see them, and so forth. Now let's go back to that room analogy. If I said there are 15 people in the room, and you go and you look and you count up 15 people. But how do you know, though, that maybe there wasn't a closet in the room and there were three people in the closet? Okay, how, maybe there was somebody up in the rafters and you didn't see them. Or maybe you were in the antebellum south when slaves were considered three-fifths a person. Okay? So, do you see what I'm saying? It's, we use epistemology. We use our senses. We use them all the time. But they can be exceedingly deceptive. And as I said, science is a form of empiricist epistemology which is one reason why people say, you know, there's some who argue you can never prove a scientific theory. Never hear that? Because you never know for sure whether other something will come along and usurp that and show that the theory, they come up with a better explanation for it and they throw everything out. But, and again, as I've said before, and again, this is the point, just because the theory works, just because it makes accurate predictions. And we can, gave you example. I gave you example of my invisible spiders from Mars to show you that that's the fact that it works or you can make predictions is completely separate issue from whether it's true. And you know, you talk about the in, empirical stuff. You say, well, don't people build devices to take us beyond our senses? Now, that's a fascinating thought. And it's true. They do, but you get into this. They argue you can't even build your device unless you already know what you're looking for. And they'll argue that a lot of devices are built 
with the scientific theories presupposed in the device. So they developed the device looking for such and such, and they assume such and such is there. And what do you know? They find such and such. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's false. It just means that it's not necessarily as objective as you might think. You know, I think of the fascinating example of the Large Hadron Collider, the greatest scientific device ever built. They're looking for the Higgs boson, and it just gets the Higgs as a, as supposedly it's a particle or a field that's, I mean, very complicated stuff. I, again, I go back to the teaching company. I listened to a 24-course lecture on it, and I probably knew it was less coming out as I went in, okay? But the point is, and I deal with this in the book, they have billions of dollars worth of equipment built upon layers and layers of assumptions, layers and layers, all sorts of theories. They've got petabytes. That's the word. They analyze petabytes of data. And in the end, they got these massive computers, and there was ultimately be a little bump on the screen through these, you know, atoms. They don't like to use the term atom smashers, but the atom smasher, and then they have these massive, they got $600,000 worth of detectors. And then they have thousands of computers, you know, these high computing petabytes of data. And then eventually they get a little bump on the computer screen. And that, they say, is they found the Higgs. Now, the point is they didn't just say they, they smashed the proton and here's a tweezer. And oh, here's the Higgs right in front of me. Okay? They had layer and layer and layer of assumption built upon assumption, built upon theories that over time will probably be overturned or superseded or whatever. Now, I'm not saying, now, I assume they know what they're doing. But let's not forget what they're doing, okay? Layer upon layer upon layer to find the Higgs boson. And I just, again, I assume that they know what they're doing, and they probably did, but it's not as clear-cut and simple as drive. You were going to ask a question? What's that? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, the large. All right, good. I like that when people are, I can anticipate. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's just a, I wanted to touch on that earlier, that Science is ultimately always a, um, it's epistemology. I mean, it's epistemology, yes, but it's empirical epistemology. And for many, many thinkers, philosophers, if you take it seriously, that is the least reliable form of knowledge, okay? Now, I want to touch on something else because... Again, there isn't any aspect of the philosophy of science that isn't come under question. You know, as I told you, they don't even agree on how to define science. Okay? 
There's all sorts of debates on how to define science. There are all sorts of debates on how do you determine if a theory is true. What does it mean if a theory is true? I mean, there's no aspect of this that there isn't questions. Now, and again, this is not to dis science. This is not to, how do you deny the success of science? How, you know, you, got, you can't deny it. Now, you could argue, well, science, if you believe in global warming or the nuclear thing, that's a separate issue. That's the humans doing science in a bad way, okay? But it's not contra science itself. But one of the big questions that people have, and I found this, as I said, this stuff was fascinating to me, is the whole question of, see, as I said before, there are different theories, and I didn't get into this much, there are different concepts of what science does. Some people, they're called the realists. They believe science teaches you about the real world. There are others who say, no, 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 science doesn't teach us about the real world at all. It just teaches us about what happens, but it doesn't, we, we can't explain, we can't know the reasons why, it just makes predictions. Others say, in fact, I have a chapter in my book, this blew my mind, a quote from a famous philosopher of science. He said, a theory could be good, but not true. And that just blew my mind. Well, you've always, if you've been listening to the lectures, you understand what I mean by that. It could be good. It makes predictions. You make technology. But it doesn't have to be true. And again, for some people, but see, here's where it's very, this gets very important in the creation evolution thing. When Richard Dawkins says that 800 million years ago, the whale ancestor went from a land animal to the water to become a whale. He means literally that there was 800 million years ago, there was a whale, there was a whale ancestor on land who literally went in the water and involved and became a whale. Because see, there's some who say all science is about making models. They just make models about things, whether, you know, everything is true or not. It just does the model work. So the point is, there are some who say science is not about truth. That's metaphysics. You build a machine, it works. Who cares what the science behind it is? Who cares what the theory is? You want to make predictions, it works. There are others who say, no, no, science is seeking truth. And in the creation-evolution debate, we're dealing with truth. Okay. We're talking about what did or did not happen. Now, one of the questions that come up is, I was fascinated how complicated it is. Scientists to this day, they cannot agree on what a scientific explanation is. They can't even agree on what an explanation is. No, we're not, talk we're not talking about individual explanations. We're talking about the whole question of what constitutes a scientific explanation. And to this day, it has never been resolved. And again, from our perspective here, this is fascinating 
because I come back to this, the great myth of our era. And for those of you had to keep hearing it, but my, some of my favorite teaching company teachers would repeat points over and over, and I was thankful. The great myth is just because it's science, it's got to be true. And my whole point of this book is say, that's not necessarily the case. It might be, but it's not necessarily the case. And with creation and with evolution, it's, I'd say it's definitely not true. Anyway, there was a, in fact, I'm reading a play now by, uh, um, reading a different one by him, by the 16th century, 17th century French dramatist named Moliere. And this is called The Doctor Without the Spite of Himself. And there's this hilarious scene where the student is taking a medical exam. And the doctor, they ask the student, why does opium put people to sleep? And the student replies, because of its dormative power. And the professor replies, docked, docked, learned, learned. Okay, this was Moliere mocking. I'm reading this other play of his right now, and it is so funny. He's 400 years ago throwing out a lot of questions about the way medicine is practiced. This was 400 years ago. But he's bringing up this question. And this is the question of causation, of explanation. What does it mean to say that X causes Y? In a scientific explanation, we explain this happens. We explain this because of this, though I think in a little while I'll show you. I don't think, I'm questioned very much whether science explains anything. It describes things. Let's take the most, what's the most famous scientific formula everybody knows? E equals mc squared. That explains absolutely nothing. Doesn't tell you anything why it happens. It just says energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Okay? It's describing something, but it doesn't explain it. it. doesn't explain it. It's just describing it. Why does energy equal mass times the speed of light squared? And see, there's a world of difference between describing something and explaining it. And in philosophy of science, some people argue that in the end, you reach a point where you really don't explain anything. And I want to look at that for a minute because it's fascinating. What do we say when we, if, if you're looking at science as doing more than just making predictions? Because again, some just make predictions. That's all that matters. Do we say why is going to happen? Why happens? That's all that matters to us. And some say, no, 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 we want to get to the why. We want to know what causes it. What is the explanation? And this could be amazingly problematic in anything. There, remember, there was this, fame, remember the famous bank robber 
John Dillinger. They put John, they caught Dillinger. And I guess eventually they shot him, but at one point they asked him, why do you rob banks? Do you remember, anybody know what Dillinger's answer was? That's where the money is. Because you're a banker, you would know that. This guy's a banker, he would know that. Why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. You know, that is a perfectly logical, rational explanation. That, you know, so in one sense, does that answer the question? Are you satisfied with that? You know, or take another one. Funny, I'm reading another book right now, too. It's a book about Hitler. You know how many books I've read on Hitler? Oh, my God. But this was, this was written by a German who, well, never mind. I'm not going to get all that. But if you know the story of Hitler, Hitler failed. Twice he applied to art school in Vienna. And twice he failed. He never got in. So instead he went into politics and the rest is history. So could you argue, can you say that the cause of World War II was Hitler being rejected from art school? I mean, I, I, I tend to think if he became an artist, the world would have been radically different. So there's something, there's something about this. You know, book and book have been written dealing with the question of causation and how it works in science. And again, causation, explanation. And it's just fascinating that there's no consensus on this. Let's go back to our Moliere story. So why does opium cause sleepiness? Because of its dormative powers. Well, you know, that's not totally wrong. It's not, it's not the same thing. Opium and dormative powers are not synonymous. It does a little bit of, quote, explaining. I mean, you could have said something like this. Well, when you take opium, the great goddess snoozer of South Albania puts you to sleep. Okay? Now, that might be a pre-scientific answer. And it's certainly not very helpful us today. But who's going to be happy with dormative powers? Okay? Well, let's look at it a little more scientifically. I mean, I had a biologists help me with this. So bear with me. Suppose we say that there are polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons in the opium and they get into the central nervous system and that puts you to sleep. Okay. But why do the polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons put you to sleep? You could say that because they attach to opioid receptors in the brain, okay? And that helps you sleep, okay? But why? 
Well, then perhaps you get right into the detailed chemistry of how the molecules work. And that explains why you sleep. Or maybe from the molecules, you get right down to the atoms. And they themselves, and what they do, helps put you to sleep. But why do the atoms on the opioid receptors put you to sleep? And at some point, you stop. Your explanation stops. And the best thing you could say is, well, it's because of their dormative powers. Okay? You know, it's on one level, it's easy to explain causation. Opium causes you to sleep because of its dormative powers. But then, how far, down, how far down the line do you go? How far down the line do you go? Do you get right down to the quarks and the leptons? How far down do you go till you have a full explanation? And do you want to explain everything in the world at the level of nuclear, at the nuclear level? You're going to explain why you like, why I like Mozart at the nuclear level? You're going to explain love? I mean, I have a section in my book where I talk about how some of these dating things, they get really into some of the scientific stuff. Like some of the, you know, the scientific stuff because, well, if everything is ultimately you know, material. Everything is ultimately materialistic. Go back and look at your DNA, look at your genes, look at the chemicals, and maybe that way you could find somebody that you're going to be mated with. It's not totally unreasonable. But the point is, at what point, how far down the line do you go? Okay, dormant of powers is not a very satisfactory answer but it seems to me there's only a quantitative difference between that and the different levels that we looked at. This is something that's very powerful. And I found numerous quotes, and I touch on this in the book. The famous Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein once said, and I got some great quotes from other philosophers of science. No matter what you do, no matter what you believe, eventually your justification for it stops. You reach a point where you say, here's as far as my explanation could go, and then it ends. In fact, in another time, Wittgenstein said there's no difference between faith there's no difference between religion and chemistry. He said they both are essentially groundless. But I wouldn't phrase it that way, but in the sense they both, you come to a point where your explanations, your justifications stop. They're not at the ground. They don't hit a bottom line. They don't hit, at some point it stops. You reach a point where you have no more. Now, in, I, t I think I said before, I have very rational reasons for my Christian faith. 
very logical, very rational reasons. In fact, somebody asked me a while back, do you ever doubt? And I said, well, if I doubt, I stop and I realize how irrational my doubt is. Okay? The things I've experienced, the things I know or believe I know, I've read way, I've so screwed my brain up with philosophy. You have no idea to the degree you can really mess yourself up with that, you know. Fortunately, I keep it anchored in scripture. But I, I forgot what I was saying. So I have very rational reasons. In fact, if I, to doubt to me is so irrational considering the things that I know and the things that I've experienced. But at the same time, I reach a point where my reason it stops, and I can't go any further. So what do I have to do? What's the word called? Faith. Okay. It's certainly not a blind faith, but I reach a point. In fact, too, this is fascinating. If you study any logic, you realize there's a point where my logic and reason has shown me the limits of logic and reason. I preached a sermon on this one time years ago and it was, I think it was a little muddled, but the point was my reason alone shows me the limits of logic and reason. And the point is you reach a point where your justification stops. And the same thing happens in science as well. They, they'll admit, they come to a certain, it's like my friend, my friend into carbon dating. I said, Irv, how far down, I want you to take me down as far as you can and get me to something absolutely certain, absolutely immovable. I don't want it on the top, I want it down a few layers. And again, we're talking physics here. We're not talking stamp collecting. You know, there's a joke, the physicists say, all true science is physics. Everything else is stamp collecting, okay? You know, ooh, I know that's me, yeah. But the point is, and I said, Irv, when does it stop? And you know, as he said, he said, science doesn't work that way. What do you know? The point is, eventually you reach a case where you have to take a leap of faith. See, with us, it's almost as if God, God knows, okay, you got these fallen beings. They're sinners. There's only so far their fallen minds could go. I'm going to give them all the rational evidence I can, okay, that they could handle. I mean, you know, to this day, to me, Daniel 2 I don't know how anybody could read Daniel 2 and come away, not see how we've been given the most logic. I mean, God gave us the history of the world, something as firm, as broad, as immovable, and as unchangeable as the history of the world. You know, that is about as rational appeal to human rationality as anything I could think of. So you have... I keep forgetting where I'm going. I keep deviating. I'm getting tired. Anyway, but the point is, but at the, I still at the point, though, I have these reasons, but then eventually 
It's called faith. Okay. I take a point where my reasoning stops and then I have to go beyond that. And it's the same thing in science. Their point, their reasoning stops and then they have to reach out. Now, they won't use the word faith. They hate that word. But that's still, you're assuming things you cannot prove. You're assuming things. In fact, I asked a chem, any chemists here? Anybody with chemistry? I, I gave a talk, a similar talk like this in Germany. And I asked a chemist about this. And I said, do you guys really know? And he says, no. We go to a certain level. And we understand what's going on to a certain degree. And then you get past that level. He says, we don't have a clue. As to, they know what happens, you know, and they can have their speculations and their ideas, but they don't know. They go on faith regarding what they think happens. But, yes, but again, but science supposedly is different, you know. I mean, science, we use math, we use formulas. Okay, can't that be very precise? But again, we go back to E equals MC squared most famous formula it describes but it explains nothing what does it explain energy equals mass times the speed of life squared do you understand why it does that do you know -uh. it just depicts it it just describes it that's all you know we talked about how earlier if you were here we talked about Newton's gravity Newton had, I said he had this famous line, I feign no hypotheses. He had absolutely no idea why objects attracted each other in space, through empty space. And as I said, I think I quoted you, he said the idea is so absurd, I don't know why anybody would believe it. And Newton was talking about his own theory. Well, Albert Einstein comes along, and he explains what happens. He said, we now know mass, matter, bends space and time. Okay, that explained it for you, space and time. The best example I've seen, you have a mattress and you drop a bowling ball or a big, heavy cinder block in the middle of the mattress. The mattress kind of digs in under the weight of the cinder block. You take a marble and you hold the marble and you let the marble go, what happens? The marble will fall towards the cinder block. That's a very crude, and I read something the other day saying that's the wrong way to explain it, but that's the way I've always been explained. But anyway, the point is mass bends space and time. Okay, of course, that explains it. Mass bends space and time. How intuitive. How could anybody not have seen it? Why did you need an Einstein in the 20th century to teach you that? But why does mass bend space and time? They have all sorts of uh, formulas, but maybe a hundred years from now. But see, right now they have no idea why mass bends space and time. They could say Einstein's field equations but then on, on and on and on. So the question is, how far down do you have to go? Do you have to go before you have 
a real solid explanation. Sooner or later, their justification, even for your scientific explanations, comes to a stop. And then you have to reach out on, a, and on faith, say, well, we don't know. All we know is that it works. But I found it kind of fascinating, this whole idea that you, in the end, even in, um, in the end, even with science, you build, you build things, okay, you build things to a certain point, and then your explanation stops for it. And, you know, there's another problem with science. It's called the problem of induction. Anybody know what we're talking about here? Well, let me give you an example. And this is all science works on this. And this actually comes back again to what I, to, to the, again, the problem of uh, how you ultimately prove a theory. We've all heard the statement, all copper conducts electricity. Okay? You believe that? Who here believes all copper conducts electricity? You believe it? I have good reasons to believe it. I say I believe it. But how do I know for sure? How do we know? Have we ever tested all copper? Have we ever, you know, how would you know, you know, all copper conducts? It sounds logical. It sounds reasonable. Sounds scientific. And every piece of copper that I've ever seen Though somebody told me, he said, it, when you get near absolute zero, copper stops conducting electricity, okay? But how can we ever study every piece of copper in the universe in order to know if that statement is true? How justified are we? How justified are we in taking the limited number of pieces of copper that we've ever seen and make a brash universal statement about all copper. You're really not ultimately justified in doing it. It's reasonable, okay, and so on, but you don't know absolutely for sure. And see, this too is one of the fascinating things and I think any honest scientist will tell you too, we don't know these things in science for sure. Okay? You might have good reasons. You could build technology on it. And again, this comes back to say, well, I don't have to know it for sure. Does it work? Does it, you know, get me, you know, to the moon and back? That's fine. But again, that becomes important in the creation and the evolution debate because we are assured dogmatically and, and of evolution and if you dare question it you're destroyed your careers are destroyed in academia the moment you start questioning it 
Or what about questions of law-like regularity? Some argue that we have a valid scientific explanation when something works with a law-like regularity. Okay, X always does Y. And every time we have experienced it, X did Y. And it works law-like. And every time we've ever seen it, but how do you know that in the future it might do Z instead of Y? Or if in the ages past it didn't do Q, it did Q instead of Y. And in particularly this last one in ages past is exceedingly important in this whole question. Because if you were here earlier, I said science works on the idea of the continuity of nature. Things do what they do now, they always did. And that's how they retrodict back to the past. But when you come to the world as it was originally created, a world without death, a world without rain, okay, a world where people live forever, the laws of what we use today aren't going to work back then. And that's one of the reasons why I believe they get it so completely wrong. Origins, if you heard that lecture, why science gets origins so wrong. Okay? But the fact is, just because X always does Y now is no proof that it, it will do it in the future. Now, we, again, we still have to work with that. You know, at the same time, you know, I can't prove that all copper conducts electricity. But I'm certainly going to build my house with copper wire. I'm going to want copper wires through it. And again, this comes back again to the earlier question. That just because something works and functions doesn't necessarily make it correct. How much more time do we have now? Oh, 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 yeah, this is something I want to do, too. This is important. As I said, I realize this is a little bit, I'm getting a little brown because I got so much stuff. One of my favorite writers was atheist Christopher Hitchens. I just like to read Hitchens. I love to listen to him. I wish he hadn't got off on all this atheist stuff. He wrote this horrific book called God is Not Great, why religion spoils everything, and it was just, was asinine. You know, he could have used, it was not a very good book at all, and I was sorry to see him go that route, because I always liked him. But he had a quote. He says, religion has run out of justifications. Every new advance with the microscope and the telescope makes religion more and more irrelevant. And I would have loved to have asked him, just what do we find? What have we seen in a microscope? What have we seen in a telescope that makes religion irrelevant? I would argue the opposite. But let me give you, I think, a good example of what I think of the fallacy in this thinking. We all know the story in Noah. 
and the ark. And oh, by the way, you'll find an incredible number of Christians who don't believe in a universal flood because the science says it never happened. And well, the science says it, therefore, and of course, the Christians are going to be the first ones. Well, science says it. Fine. What was the sign that Noah gave that promised the world he'll never destroy it by a flood again? The rainbow. You know, and I say to some of my Christian friends, well, if you don't believe in a universal flood, every rainbow makes God a liar because there have been a lot of local floods. Okay, so God puts the rainbow in the sky. And people now just laugh at that. you got to be kidding me. Because science has explained to us, quote, explain. See, I'm getting caught in my own trap. Because I'm not one, I, I believe science describes more than explains. But science has described an awful lot about the rainbow. We know that when you got the water droplets, a beam of light comes in, it reflects off of one side, refract. I don't remember how all it is, but you, you can read some pretty complicated mathematical explanations of the rainbow. It can get quite complicated, the math, because you know, you're dealing with light and the bending of light. And they say, look, now we know it's got nothing to do. Come on, that was... That was pre-scientific superstition by a bunch of late Bronze Age camel herders. They don't know anything about light. They don't know anything about the refractory and reflective properties of light. So to sit there and say that the left, the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant, that he's never going to destroy the world with a flood. We know what a rainbow is. It's light hits it, and you can give all the mathematical formulas you want. How does that make sense to you? How would you answer that? Let me ask you a question. How would you answer that charge? You've you got to be kidding me. You believe that's a sign of God's covenant? God, you know, a rainbow? We now know what happens. Science has proved to us. Science, I think it was Keats who had the line in a poem, science will unweave the rainbow. I think even Dawkins wrote a book, Unweaving the Rainbow. What is wrong with that argument? If someone came up to you and said, that's a bunch of nonsense. Well, no, you can prove, you can show what, you can see what the light is doing. They know you can create a rainbow in a, in, in a um in a laboratory. Exactly. God, see, if Scripture said, God said, I will take angels' feathers and seraphim feathers. I'll take the blue feathers of a seraphim and the green fe feathers of a cherubim and I'll weave angel feathers together. And now make your bow in the sky. 
we'd have a problem, okay? But all it says is, I will put the bow in the sky. So God created our world in such a way that when light hits water droplets at a certain angle, it creates this beautiful bow in the sky. And if anything, I'd say that, uh, I, what, time does it, what time does I stop to, what time does this go to? Five, I only got eight more minutes left, huh? All right. Can you see the point here? Can you see the, the, the point? Someone would say, oh, see, I heard a physicist one time say, his name was Peter Atkins. And Atkins, he was a new atheist long before Dawkins or any of them. And I'm trying to find it. I heard him on YouTube and I want to find it again. He said something utterly fascinating to me. He said, science is going to keep peeling back reality. He's a Brit. Millimeter, I still never make that metric stuff, just drives me to drink. Can't stand it. Millimeter to millimeter. He said it's going to peel back until it shows absolutely no need for God at all. And I would have loved to have sat down and talked to him and, have, and asked him, what do you think you're going to, what can you imagine when you peel it back are you going to find that's going to show you that there's no need for God at all? And you know what he's going to tell me? Because I quote him in my book here. He says, science will never be totally successful. This is unbelievable. Till it could prove the existence of the universe from absolutely nothing. You know, not something small, not a quantum fluctuation, but from absolutely nothing. You know, this is deviating a little from my point. Oh, I guess we've run out of time. I want to pick up tomorrow. I want to pick up two things. I want to pick up, I want to spend a little time showing the idiocy of theistic evolution. People, how they try to meld it. And then just look at all this. I don't think it's coincidental that all this goes on in context of last day of events. But if you... They will argue now that the universe arose from nothing. And you know, I believe that's the most logical, rational argument that they could come up with. Okay? I believe they're forced to do that. Because if you, there are only two things, because let's say, you know, scientists are always looking for their fame, oh, I'm not going to bother, it's too hard to figure out how to use the pen. <laughs> okay. Took me like five minutes. To... Scientists are looking for what they call a theory of everything. Ever heard that? The theory of everything. They're looking for the, I guess they're looking for, we said justification stops. They want to get the 
furthest down. And the most prime basic thing, the explanation for everything, the most fundamental theory, and say they come up with, the, they think they find it, x plus y equals z. Okay, I'm just obviously throwing out some silly stuff, but you know, they want everything in a formula. This, they say, is the most foundational formula. This could explain everything from the existence of time to the, you know, the existence of hummingbirds. You could all get it down with this. There's a slight problem, though. Why x instead of q? Why y instead of t? Why p instead of l? See, no matter what they come up with, that's going to need an explanation. And if that's explained by something, then x plus y equals z is not the most foundational. Something is more foundational to it. And say you go, we find, we, we get something smaller. Q plus Q times T equals QL. That's the most fun. You got infinite regress. There are only two things that I could think of. Only two things I could think of where you, that don't need an explanation. An eternal existing God who was always there, who was before, prior to all explanate, you know, the foundation of all that exists, an eternal existing God. Now, because science, the way they practice science, will not accept that. You know, a practicing scientist might be a believer, but in terms of his science, no, no, you can't do that. That's what they would argue. Well, What's the only other thing that doesn't need an explanation? The only, nothing, nothing. You know, it's nothing. So you don't need anything to explain it. Okay, it's nothing. There was the famous question, why is there something instead of nothing? Well, if there's, you know, nothing doesn't need an explanation. So you got an eternal existing God creates everything, or you've got nothing. And if you a priori rule out the eternal existing God, the most logical thing you've got is nothing. And I have a book on my iPad called The Universe from Nothing. There's been a spade of books coming out now on trying to show that the universe arose from nothing. But folks, and we'll end on this, we can't mock that because it's science. And I'm thinking it's science, and therefore how dare any mere mortal question it. Okay, well, thank you. You've been a pretty good audience, and we'll pick it up. We'll pick up tomorrow. Thank you for that. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www. 
gycweb.org.